Steve. What's up, dude? A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs many at each other's expense. We, well, we both enjoy the art of the conversation. We both have faces that are made for radio. So the, at least eyebrows for me. <laughs> Double chin for me. <laughs> we get a lot of ones right, but we get a lot of ones wrong. One of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. And if you pardon me, I'd like to say we do okay forever in blue jeans. So we're sitting here, as you might be able to tell with the background noise in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency in beautiful Orlando, Orlando Florida. Here at Hims. But I think both of us would say the highlight just occurred yeah. in getting to spend 45 minutes with Andy Slavitt. He's a great podcast guest. I think people wow. really enjoy the breadth of his career experience. He's a small e-entrepreneur and tells us a little bit about the company he started and actually why he started with was with incredible Chad. story. Incredible story about his friend passing unfortunately and and you know the thing I found interesting about him is he not only thinks about his business objectives, but he also thinks about the emotional impact that healthcare has on patients. And that, that followed him through to his role at Optum, which is one of the largest healthcare private companies in yeah, the world that he led and helped build. And then obviously to his role saving healthcare.gov. In five weeks. In five weeks, which is an amazing story. And then being the head of Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, right? Yep. CMS, which is the largest insurer in the world. I've had the good fortune to speak with him a number of times over the years, but I have never gotten to hear his own personal take on leadership mm-hmm. and how he thinks about leading people and leading organizations mm-hmm. and the way he takes a situation like Ingenix or like healthcare.gov or CMS and applies a consistent philosophy and approach to leadership to empower and enable the people that work for him to do things that no one things can yeah. be done. And, yeah. A lot, and of, lot of talk about performance metrics and things that he learned from his father, actually, in terms of just grinding it out, right? Getting, getting that, as he said, that 90.1 and yeah. doing the work to get it done. That sort of metrics-driven, performance-driven culture is really important to have in our government, too. And, and you could see that he instilled that. Um, yeah. As well as, again, that I think his mother taught him, thinking about the human act, the impact of it, right? It's that yin and the yang of him that's really interesting. It was a real honor to get to spend time with him like that. And, and I he know said he'd come back. For those Our people first, listening. Our second time right. offered guests. We didn't even come close to touching the stuff I know, we, we wanted to. We could have gone on for so hours. he offered to do a second one. which And we we're public policy <laughs> geeks. We love it. So oh, we'll talk politics and policy totally. all day long with him. Yeah. So look for that coming up. Enjoy this one. This will go down as a classic episode of A Healthy Dose. So first of all, welcome, Andy. Thank you Thanks. so much. Great to be here with you at the boat show. <laughs> we, uh, we, it literally is a boat show. We want to touch on all the different things you've accomplished. I wanted to actually take you back since we were at Penn together. I think you worked at Goldman. You went to HBS. You worked at McKinsey. That's a pretty pedigreed start to your career. Where was the formation of that you know, initiative? My, my dad was one of those guys that basically believed that what you couldn't accomplish with intelligence, you just accomplished with hard work. And so my upbringing was very old school, traditional, you know. I was probably growing up the king of the 90.1. I would do just enough to get the A, (laughs) but I would get the A. 
So I wasn't the smartest kid in the class, but my grades were good. You know, like most young people, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know what investment banking was, but I heard Goldman Sachs was the best place and the hardest place to get a job. And, you Where'd know, you grow up? I grew up right outside of Chicago, okay. uh, in Evanston. Yeah. And so I think, you know, like a lot of people, your early years are the years that become so impressionable. And I was fortunate to work uh, with people that were very high integrity and were willing to invest in me as a young person and give me exposure to the right ways to do things. And so when I finally figured out what I did have an interest in and a passion for, I had picked up a foundation that had really helped me. And I can't just talk about my dad because my mom has, she's still living, a really strong instinct for people. What we call today emotional intelligence, intelligence yeah. right? Back then it didn't have a phrase, but very, very off the charts. As a young kid, how'd you see that? I would have a conversation with her and she would always tell me what the other person was saying. I was saying this and the reason I said this is because the other person was in a really bad place and I wanted them to know that I cared. Well, how did you know? You know, you can just tell when someone's in that kind of situation. So combined with, I think, my dad's constantly hit the books, hit the books, hit the books, achieve, achieve, achieve. You know, you gotta be excellent at everything. And my mom, I think, really complimenting them. And I went to Penn and I went there as an English major. And I said, you know, this Wharton thing looks interesting. And my dad said, well, you're welcome to add Wharton to being an English major, but you're gonna study liberal arts. Huh. This is your only time in life to study liberal arts. You can do whatever you want in your career, but you have to develop both of those sides. So I became dual degree. And today, you know, we talk about it as lateral thinking and horizontal yeah, thinking, right. but those are skills that are so important as opposed to just the tools training you get in a place like Wharton or something. How'd you get into healthcare? So, you know, I think a lot of people end up in healthcare through some sort of personal event, a disruptive event in their life, and I had one. Um, I was 30 or 31 years old. My roommate from Penn, his name was Jeff, and I, we were both recently married. He had a wife and twin one-year-olds. I had a newborn, and uh, one day he, he called me and said he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. This was in January, and by July he passed away. He'd been pre-med at Penn, he was a doc, but he was not at a point where he was making any money. They didn't have any life insurance. His wife wasn't working, and the long and short of that was that his widow, Lynn, and their kids moved across the country and moved in with my wife and I. So my first year of marriage, I had two wives and three kids, <laughs> and wow. a lot of crying and recovery yeah. and all that. One of the things that occurred to me at the time as we were helping Lynn get back on her feet was she had tens of thousands of dollars of medical expenses from Jeff that were unpaid, all of which occurred... Uh, in those kind of intervening five months, because I was, at that point in time, I was running a company that I'd taken public uh, after leaving McKinsey, was that there was no good consumer retail experience when finding and paying for healthcare, and that insurance companies would pay 30, 40 cents on the dollar compared to what consumers would pay. So I started what, you know, in today's terms, was an internet company, it was the 90s, that was really targeted at delivering an online marketplace to people who were uninsured and underinsured, <laughs> So they could find healthcare services that were not just paying a fair rate, but were higher quality and wrapped around their specific needs. And that was Health Allies. I mean, that's an amazing story, uh, personally. But you went from McKinsey to become an entrepreneur? Uh, actually, at 28, I ran a private equity-backed financial services company oh, interesting. that uh, I helped take public. Okay. And then after that, That's I when you made the shift to healthcare yeah. Yeah. and started Health Allies. Yeah. Wow. And with Health Allies, 
classic entrepreneurial story. I mean, was, was it literally your idea and you and a piece of paper in your house <laughs> working on the first day? So it was me and an idea, and I sat down to talk to a few people about this is a problem. Am I am I right to generalize from this problem? And I would go talk to hospital CFOs who I knew, and say, in your community mission that hangs on the wall in the hospital, it says all these really great things, but. There's one thing I didn't see. Can you maybe explain to me how if a woman comes in who's a lawyer and delivers a baby, you'll charge her $2,500 to her insurance company. And if a waitress comes in from down the block and she's uninsured, you'll charge her $10,000. So just tell me how that squares with your mission and I'll leave happy. And said, essentially, we need to build a service for consumers to do this. It was a time when everybody was starting internet businesses and one of the key conversations I had was with someone that we all know, Ted Mizell. For listeners, Ted is today the chairman of the board of Wiser Care, founder of Avia, was the CEO of Overture, right? Right, which was the precursor to Yahoo's search business. Yep. And he's just a hell of a nice guy. He is that, uh, and then some. And then some. And was both the first investor and a coach and a mentor and a friend. And that was probably the pivotal conversation that launched Health Allies. Yeah, so then it started out with myself, five co-founders that I recruited, and two rounds of venture funding. I ended up selling the business to United Health Group in 2003. So you ran it for how long? 99 to 03. Optum, as we know it today, one of the fastest growing, most unbelievable stories Amazing in healthcare. Yeah. You were part of the team that created Optum, right? You were yeah. actually a CEO of Ingenix before Optum was in existence. Can you talk to us about when the kind of founding ideas of Optum were coming together, what was it intended to be and what is it today as comparison sure. to that? In the 80s, if you think back to the financial services industry, people invested their retirement money in GICs, guaranteed investment contracts, right. uh, which is about the worst thing you could invest long-term money in. There was no lifestyle funds. Banks were not wired with ATMs. And if you were going to use an ATM, you had to use your bank's ATM. Right. Travel, right? Before Sabre system, there was no ability to connect reservations across the system. So when those things happened, those industries started to transform fairly rapidly to the point where you have these, you know, Fidelity is a superstore, you can do everything there, and it's consumer-oriented, and it's a lot of things made that happen, technology, data, but also just the ability to create a scalable services platform. And I think the vision that we had behind Optum was that you needed a scalable services platform, almost a utility, the infrastructure, could, the infrastructure that could help provide the data, the technology, the analytics to the industry to be able to use. And in fact, that was, I think, the very a simple version of what we wanted to become. Now, we had a couple of advantages. You know, when I joined it, them just to size things a little bit, the aggregate pieces that became Optum were probably around a billion dollars in revenue, maybe a little less. The aggregate pieces being Ingenix, Ingenix Optum Health. Sorry. Optum Health and Prescription Solutions became the, uh, the third piece when we acquired it. But at that time, it was just Ingenix and Optum Health. And by the time I left, it was about $40 billion. Wow. Um, so we, That's 10 years? Eight, nine years. Eight, nine years. Yeah. Wow. And so I think the thing that's interesting is, and we're talking a little bit about this today, is living through certain different stages of development. And Optum, there's a lot of billion dollar companies, not a lot of $40 billion companies, and today it's bigger. Today it's you know, 60, 70, because they just made another couple recent acquisitions. Right. But we were easily becoming, in our, each of the little spaces we served, the biggest player in those markets. What we weren't was within the context of United Health Group, 
we were still less than 10%. And our commitment to Steve Hemsley was uh, we should drive more than 50% of our earnings growth from the Optum platform, which seemed a very fanciful idea at the time. But if you wanted to either see whether Optum was going to become an independent business or whether or not you wanted to see the multiple lift tick up in the stock, you were going to have to do that and get to serious scale. But more than that, from my perspective, to have a scalable player in the industry that was capable of serving physicians, hospitals, pharma companies, employers, everybody, and using sort of more common elements was, I think, the vision. That's, a, and that's that, what led to the acquisitions of Monarch and Apple Care and a bunch of the at-risk care. Yeah, double-click on that vision a little bit, and you get to what are the things that it takes to transform the healthcare system. And if you go any direction other than begin by looking and segmenting the 305 different healthcare communities in the country, you probably lead you to some place you overgeneralize. Again, if you're making big plays, remember, my challenge every year, I had to make my numbers, you know, 40, 50, 60 periods in a row. When you're 20 and 30 billion and you gotta grow 20% a click. Not easy. Not easy, you gotta find <laughs> really big ways and big pieces. So you're forced to think in macro trend terms, right? You can't, if you're a services business, that you're innovating, whether you're acquiring or whether you're building or whether you're doing a little bit of both, you have to basically get the macro trends right. And to me, the macro trends that existed, you, you couldn't get to unless you could find the 305 healthcare communities in the country and find the commonalities and the traits that would drive them towards transformation and then figure out in each case what's the right way to participate in that transformation. And so what led us to, you mentioned Monarch, led us into really investing in independent primary care was to say, if you look at these markets and you compare them, there are some markets where there's no more independent primary care. They're all owned by hospitals and big integrated delivery networks. And guess what the difference in those markets are? A lot more utilization, a lot more hospital utilization. The people are basically feeding the beast. Yeah. Where you have independent primary care, you've got much better metrics on a lot of those fronts. So you know, we went to the board and said, that would be our strategy for those markets. And then in markets where they were already consolidated, we had a different kind of an approach and a different kind of strategy. Yeah, and we're, your point where you're, you're trying to move the organization growth, but also move the needle in terms of healthcare, it's the last mile where you're making a difference there too. Absolutely. So. That team that you were a part of that built Optum, that group of people have gone on to absolutely amazing things across the board. Great people. Great people. And you, know, you learn from guys like Steve Hemsley how to be a magnet for talent how to build in performance, how to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, a plan mm -hmm. D each quarter, you know, how to deliver and how to execute. And I think Steve probably saw me as someone who was, despite what I may have accomplished before, and as very raw relative to being able to run something of meaningful size and scale when I got there. And I was fortunate, again, the theme in my life has always been, and I think it, I hopefully try to do the same for others, is you find people who are willing to, see something in you and are willing to take a chance on you and invest in you and give you more than you can handle and watch you and lovingly kick your butt when you need it. And I was fortunate that I was at a place that created a ton of cash flow, needed to innovate because they didn't want to give it all back to shareholders. He viewed me as a grower and certainly within that culture as someone who could innovate and drive success. And he taught me and I learned there how to make my numbers and deliver and over-deliver and over-perform. So again, a little bit with the mom and dad story, there is a sort of a combination of having a vision, being able to grow and go get it, but to manage at scale. And I loved the people element of, of organizations. Uh, I love the cultural elements of organization. I love working with people and younger people 
now because now many of them are younger than me, sadly. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and helping them reach their potential and deliver. Was it Steve who picked up the phone and called you and said, hey, Andy, we've got a problem with healthcare.gov. Can you go in and try to figure it out? Who placed that call and how do you get plucked out of the situation you're in and find yourself spending the weeks in DC? You know, with the most high profile technology. Steve and Larry project. and I were talking about it and Steve and Larry and I went out to the government, visit them together. And we had a fateful meeting one day and I, I put together a one pager. Sounds like you have a technology problem. You may or you may not, but there's never been a technology problem that we've ever seen that can't be easily solved. What you probably have is a management problem. Interesting. And here's what we're offering. We knew nothing about government contracting at the time, so the offer was, don't pay us. This is not why we're doing this. But happy to come in and help either advise you or guide you to turn this around. We're hands-on people. We'll bring our own operators. And the one thing I'll commit to you is I'll treat this problem like it's my own. And, and Andy, just for our listeners, give us a time frame. This is October 2013 when basically the, the machine ain't working. Healthcare.gov had You're going into your launched. first enrollment period too, right? They had already started the enrollment period and, and nothing was happening. And people could not enroll online, People couldn't enroll. So I ended up playing what I think people in the team came to refer to as the CEO role, which is, you know, we had dozens of vendors. Many of them were not doing their jobs. Many of them were losing a lot of people. The work was broken up in appropriate ways. There wasn't a lot of accountability. There wasn't a focus on execution. There was no communication on the team. You know, basically, when did you have to get this done by? When they agreed to have me come in, they basically said, great, we want to announce you tomorrow. This is like the day after this meeting. And so they had this press conference. They announced it. And at the end of the press conference, they said, and this will be fixed by November 30th, which was not a date we'd ever heard from them. And at some level, it was a terrible thing to do to us. At some level, it was the biggest favor they could have done us hmm. because once you know that you have five weeks to do whatever you can in five weeks, you rule a whole bunch of things out. You don't spend a lot of time dithering. And, you know, it's a mathematical equation. You can break it down to 35 days and you know what you need to do every single day. And, you know, a lot of it was don't overthink it. There's a lot to do. We've got thousands and thousands of defects. And Were you 24-7 during that period? Were you literally? Absolutely, 24-7. Did you inherit a team or did you just bring a SWAT team in, your own team? Brought a lot of people in with me from Optum, but also, you know, there was a huge federal workforce and there were a lot of contractors and they were the ones with hands on keyboard. And we couldn't retrain a bunch of other people to, awesome. to do that. How many people work for this healthcare.gov enterprise that are trying to, in at five weeks, point, jam it out? At that point in time, you know, there were hundreds. But, you, you know, remember, we were standing up hardware that was failing. Right. The, the code was failing, the architecture was not good, and the lead vendor had lost her commitment to the project and was basically trying to escape blame, and there was a lot of finger pointing. So a lot of it was just pure leadership, just sitting down with every CEO and saying, look, you guys are all taking shots in each other in the press and pointing fingers. Right now it's 6 p.m., starting right now, anybody takes a shot at anybody else around this table, you're taking a shot at me. In return, you don't take shots at one another, I will take public accountability for everything that goes wrong. Huh. Your names will not be mentioned. This is not on the vendor. This is on the federal government. I wasn't part of the federal government, but I was, you know, basically viewed wow. myself as such and basically took all the people that were working in their own silos in their offices and said, we're not doing it that way anymore. We're creating a centralized operating center with two stand-ups a day. We're creating one center where all the defects are going to be worked. We're creating another center where we're looking at the architecture and basically went completely badgeless and said, this team will consist of these two vendors plus CMS people plus 
some of my people or with all the right experts in each of these things, got those teams working and basically coordinated and managed the hell out of it. We hit the timeline, but I'll tell you, some of the stuff going on behind the scenes, I mean, it was literally involved Oracle sending a big Exadata box across the country, <laughs> literally following it, like where it stopped every day, where that's how tight things were. And, you know, to call up Mark Hurd and say, I need the next one off your line, right. and to call up OMB and Overnight say, it, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, how long does it take to procure something like this? And they say, well, about six months. Uh -uh. He said, okay, great, you got about six hours <laughs> because we have to send the money to Oracle tonight. You couldn't have done those things if you weren't in a crisis. But you also, if we weren't working backwards from November 30th, right. uh, we, we wouldn't have pushed that hard in that direction. Function, right? The forcing function turned out to be our biggest favor for us. And we ended up enrolling, you know, six million people that first year. And I'll never forget standing in the operating center because we had no visibility into site performance. There, no it metrics. wasn't instrumented. It wasn't yeah, no instrumented. instrumented, yeah, yeah. So then we instrumented the whole thing. And the first day we watched the average time between someone would click and move to the next part of the site was four and a half seconds. And I remember the first time we broke a second, which was a ways out. But then the biggest thing when we were all instrumented, when someone clicked that they were confirming that they were uh, enrolling in coverage, the first day we saw those numbers start to pop and we started realizing people were getting covered. Cool. And this Amazing, whole right? craziness in this whole operating center one by one, people just started stopping and saying, come here, look at this. Just to have that seat in that command room and to know that you've been responsible for enrolling now over 30 million people into healthcare and it was your work. My premise in joining government when the administration asked if I would consider joining was, I felt for reasons we talked about earlier that I was attracted to do public service. And what I said to them is of all the various options, rather than going into a policy role in the White House, I said, put me where the assets are. Put me where the people are and put me where the budget is. And so I ended up in CMS. And my premise was, like everything else in life, the adage that it's 10% idea, 90% execution, is equally true in the government. Just like anything you guys look at as venture investors, the business plan is one thing, but the team that executes and how they execute is gonna have everything to do with whether you succeed. Absolutely. And the ACA and health reform, my thesis was exactly the same, that we had spent all the time we'd spent thinking about on what we wanted to do, but the government and the administration hadn't put a premium on execution. And where I came from in the private sector, that's exactly what was needed. Whether you're talking about getting people covered or whether you're talking about changing the payment system, you know, it'd be more than issuing a bunch of rules. It's actually getting into the psyche of the hospital CFO to understand how they think about their next investment dollar. And are they going to invest that dollar in building another wing? because fee-for-service is going to be the future, or are they going to invest that investment dollar in building a data system that allows them to understand the population health in their community? And those decisions were going to hinge as running the largest payer felt like we could be the ones to send the signal to the market. So coming in with an execution focus very tied to what's going on in the private sector, iterative, opening up CMS more, putting a little bit of a personality on it so that it wasn't just a bureaucracy that was sort of opaque and that people who were so dependent on couldn't really understand what the goals were. We talked about this this morning. You've been very effective yeah. in using Twitter. I mean, really, uh, obviously our current president is effective in a yeah. different way in using Twitter, but I, 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 I showed him. How <laughs> you showed him the way, <laughs> exactly. but, but seriously, I think yeah. your point about putting a face on, I found it fascinating. Not a lot of government bureaucrats, yep. excuse the term, yep. 
use social media communicating, and you did it in office, and you're yeah. doing it post office. Tell us a little well, bit about that. Well, the truth that. is it was a loophole in the communication world because, as you'd expect, there's pretty good clearance processes for issuing press statements right. and issuing congressional testimony. There just wasn't one for Twitter and for social media. And I wasn't necessarily looking to take advantage of it, but it was a really critical goal to make DMS more engaged and get closer to where care actually happens in the community. That turned out to be an effective way because, as you know, on Twitter, people will give you a piece of their mind. And as a public servant, I would not mute people or block people. I would engage in, with every critic. But then people could watch me engage and they could judge for themselves. I was hoping to be setting an example for the agency you never get better unless you admit where your flaws are. You're not going to get better unless you're interacting on a regular basis. And they were scared of that. But I adopted a position which is, look, we will see massive amounts of problems come to our door at CMS every day. I should do one thing. Separate every problem into, is it a real problem or is it a fake problem? <laughs> a, you know, real problems in Puerto Rico. There's a crisis there of Zika. Uh, Medicaid has a block grant that's running out of funding. That's a real problem. A senator is mad at me is a fake problem. Not that it's not important, not that we don't treat it as professionally as we do everything else, not that we don't execute it, but if we're going to do what we think is the right thing, we're always going to have people mad at us. And it's not your job to worry about who's mad at us, it's my job. And then you get people who are deeply expert at what they did to say, well, if that's the case, then the right thing to do is we should bring mental health closer to the Indian reservations because that's where things are. You know, some people are not going to be happy because they're going to lose business, but if we did that, it would really help the health of the tribal population. So, and I just gave you a, a random actual example, but once you unlock that and you realize that in all organizations, the answers are often there. If you find ways to draw people out and feel comfortable uh, getting to do that and then saying, fine, my job is to help you make that happen. Same leadership that you did at healthcare.gov, it sounds like. Same philosophy, yeah. same approach. Yeah, I mean, everyone has their own leadership style, and I think they apply it pretty universally. And I wouldn't blame CMS one bit when I came in for thinking, oh, God, here comes a private sector person who is going to do some evil private sector things, or not even evil, just things that don't fit. And... Of course, good leaders don't do that, right? Good leaders go in and listen and ask a lot of questions, admit their vulnerabilities, ask for help, build consensus on ideas. And I said to them, look, I'm a temporary employee. I'm going to be here two years. You got to expect a couple things from me. One is that I should do the work of 20 years in two years because that's the only way I'll be able to keep up with what you're contributing. And secondly, that I help you figure out where you think the agency should go and help you articulate it. And help you remove the roadblocks to get there, and then pass this off to a successor who can help continue to take it the rest of the way and make the agency better. And that's where we are now. What's, uh, what's next for Andy Slavitt? You know, they tell you when you leave government, I think really good advice is don't make any decisions for 90 days. And I'm mostly keeping to that. I'm violating it in one pretty meaningful way, which is I am going to keep a presence in DC at a place that I haven't yet announced where I'm going to continue to play a role in doing what I have been doing, which is you know, convening at their request governors, hospital CEOs, health plan CEOs, pharma CEOs, other stakeholders, who essentially have a view that as long as we have the future of healthcare owned by one party or the other, it's not going to serve us well. It's not going to serve them well either. It doesn't serve the Democrats Amen. well. 
It won't serve the Republicans yep. well. And we can't be forced to sit through this game of ping pong as a country. So, Especially in healthcare, it needs stability. I would rather have half a loaf that everybody owned than a full loaf owned by one party. And so I'm going to keep a presence in DC. I've got some folks who will be doing that full time. I will be in a senior role helping to chair an initiative to move things forward. And as long as I'm helpful, lend my voice to this with the Hill, with various governors and, and importantly, the private sector and industry leaders. Other than that, I am just having a good time listening to what people have to say and what people are approaching me with. I'm in no rush to a traditional job job. You know, I'm at a point in my career when a lot of my friends are now running major parts of the healthcare system. And so I like being in a position where I can say yes when they call and say, hey, Andy, can you help? Well, great. As a citizen, as someone who cares about healthcare, thanks for all that you've Thank done. Thank you, guys. I Thank you very it. much. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. We're